0: Windblown as you are, we are here this morning in God's house, so I'm excited to have you here. Whether you are joining us in person or perhaps joining us on Facebook Live, it is good to be in God's house this morning. Uh, Let's start this morning by beginning our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. And God, you are the God of the impossible. Father, we recognize that there are situations in our lives, even uh, at this very moment, that seem impossible to our human understanding, Father, that require the God of the impossible to move. And so, Father, for each of those circumstances and situations, we ask that you would move, Father God, or that your presence would uh, be in those places and that you would be with us this morning, God. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning, I want to talk with you about the biblical concept of loving difficult people. And as a pastor, I wish that I could tell you that um, I had the ability to love difficult people with the same fluidity of grace and mercy that Jesus did. However, to do so would be a bold-faced lie. And Quite frankly, if I'm honest with you, I don't feel like getting struck by lightning for uh, promoting blasphemy from this stage this morning, so I'm not going to say that. The reality is, is that as a pastor, I, um, it means that I do not automat- automatically uh, preclude myself from struggling to love difficult people in my community. Much like many of you who are probably seated here this morning, Every week, it seems like I encounter different people who, for a variety of different reasons, seem to test the very extent of God's love within me. And on those occasions, I have the desire to sometimes lay my hands upon those people, but not necessarily in the name of Jesus, if you know what I'm talking about. And as I was thinking back over my ministry career over these last uh, 7 to 10 years that I've been doing part-time and full-time ministry, and the people that I've encountered along that journey, I can say with absolute clarity that the people that have caused me the most trouble in terms of loving them are teenagers. Now... I had a lot of years as a youth pastor, and in those years, I grew accustomed to kind of the wild mood swings that you would deal with with teenagers, the dismissive eye rolls, right? Like, they, you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here, you old guy. Or just trying to stay up to date with all the uh, current teenage slang, it became apparent and understanding why I was not a lifer in youth ministry. I love teenage kids. And I like the opportunity to share God's love with teenage kids, but it's not easy, is it? In fact, um, in particular, there was one student who we'll refer to by the name of Steve, just to protect his uh, identity, who on an almost weekly basis in youth ministry would push the boundaries of my patience and mercy at youth group. And I'll never forget the day that he finally pushed too far. I was driving a van full of high school students back to church after a long and very, very hot day at a local amusement park. And for reasons really only known to Steve in that moment, and to which I do not understand, he decided that it would be a good idea to reach for an uneaten banana that was laying on the ground, and to pick up this banana and throw it from the back seat as hard as he could at the back of a middle school girl's head who was seated in the seat right next to me in the front passenger seat. Now, you have to put yourself in my situation for just a moment walk a minute in my shoes here i'm driving 60 miles per hour down the highway in a van full of teenage kids when out of nowhere i feel the whoosh as some an object whizzes past my head and then out of the corner of my eye i see this object ricochet off the back of this poor girl's dome to land then directly in my lap Now, I don't know if it was the heat of that moment, or if perhaps it was the exhaustion of the day, or perhaps just the fact that I really struggled at times to love Steve. But in that moment, I lost it. I pulled over to the side of the road, got out of the van, opened the door pulled Steve out of the van and took him out behind the van and proceeded to rebuke him for his actions in a manner that was not very Christ-like and not very loving. And so the moral of that story is is that if you want to make me irrationally mad as a pastor, (laughs) huck a banana at the back of someone's head and find out what happens. But it also serves as a reminder that even as a pastor, there are times when I struggle to love difficult people. And as those who are sitting here in the audience with us this morning, you're probably already having thoughts of those people in your lives. And if you weren't, you certainly are now. Those difficult people that you struggle to love, because we all have those people in our lives, don't we? Maybe it's a boss or a coworker. Or maybe it's a neighbor or a relative, maybe it's an ex-spouse or maybe it's your current spouse, and if that's uh, you, don't say amen right now keep that to yourself, okay? We all encounter people in our communities that at times can be difficult for us to love, but adding another degree of difficulty to this whole task of loving difficult people is the fact that we also live in a culture that is so divisive, We live in a culture that practically begs for us to choose the path of anger and offense toward people we encounter in our lives, especially if said individual has a differing political, moral, or religious viewpoint than ourselves. We have a tendency because of that to kind of divide and categorize our community and the peoples that we know within those communities into an us and them. And anytime somebody moves into the them category, if they are difficult to love, it becomes and feels like they're now impossible to love. And so, if our divisive culture weren't already enough for us to deal with when it comes to loving difficult people in our community, you can add to that a general confusion about exactly what does it mean to love others? What does loving mean? What does loving others mean in our community? Because there are those within our community who would tell us that to love others means that we need to wholesale acceptance of a person's beliefs or lifestyle. They would say that is what love is, and that anything short of that is hatred and bigotry. Somebody who's adopted that kind of uh, belief might say that to love somebody and not accept their lifestyle is to hate that person. And so the question becomes then, how in such tumultuous societal waters do we navigate the calling and the mandate of Jesus Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because even despite our social dilemmas, the mandate to love others, even those who are difficult to love, does not and cannot stop. And so how do we navigate those waters? And I think God must have known, and he's a lot smarter than I am, so God must have known that we as human beings would really struggle with loving people who are difficult in our lives. In fact, in the closing chapter of the book of Hebrews, he prescribes a solution to this trouble that we have with loving, difficult people that has a modern concept but is also rooted in ancient biblical tradition. And so I want to invite us this morning, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can open those and of course we'll have the verses on the screen behind me in just a second. But I want us to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And together, let's explore what God's Word has to say about loving those difficult people in our community. And so the author of Hebrews writes in his closing instructions. He's gone through the entire book, and he's giving his final instructions to his audience. And he addresses the issue of loving difficult people as he does so. And so beginning in verse 1, he writes this, "...keep loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers." For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were there together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And so the author of Hebrews here is encouraging his audience to keep on loving others. Now, how many of you would recognize this morning that the meaning of the word love can vary greatly depending on the context with which we use it, right? So if I were to say this morning, I love my wife Dawn, but then a few sentences later also say I love tacos, that does not mean that I love my wife and tacos equally, despite the fact that tacos are really awesome, right? (laughs) If I said that, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch for a long time, (laughs) I'm using a single word, love, to, expressing, to express varying degrees of affection that I have towards someone or something. And that's in our modern American vernacular. However, if we were to look at Greek, the Greek language, we would see that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, actually use multiple words to express the variances of their affection. And in Hebrews, chapter 13, the author employs the word Philadelphia to describe the kind of love that he expected to exist in Christ followers for others. Now, because of our modern U.S. city of Philadelphia, every one of us probably already knows that Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's right. See, you can speak Greek and you didn't even know it. So um, it's brotherly love. And in the ancient secular world, this term Philadelphia was primarily used to describe the familial love between family members. However, it was not used to describe a love that existed between two individuals who are not related by blood. But here is where God is amazing. Amazing. He takes this idea that is secular in nature and turns it upside down and says that Philadelphia within the Christian life is meant to be at a descriptor of a familial kinship or bond or an affection towards another, and especially as it relates between two believers who now are knit together in the same family, not by physical blood, but by the blood of Jesus. They are now knit together in a spiritual family. And it also, in a broader sense, spoke to a love that was to exist towards just humanity in general as people who possessed the image of God. And so we see these two contexts in which Philadelphia is used, both as the believer to another believer, and in a general sense towards humanity as fellow image bearers of God. But here's the truth, as every one of us knows when I say this, Philadelphia is not something that can be done or at least maintained for any amount of time by our own strength and ability. It's not something that we can do by our own strength and ability. In other words, loving others in our community as our brothers and sisters is not something that comes naturally to us as human beings. True Philadelphia is not something that can be self-generated. True Philadelphia in the life of a believer is something that is Christ-enabled and Holy Spirit-empowered in our lives. Philadelphia is Christ-enabled and Holy Spirit-empowered in our lives. And the book of Romans actually speaks to this fact. As the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans 5.5, 5, he says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. In other words, God's love is not something that naturally exists within the heart of man. It's not something that is just naturally there for us. It's something that is given to us and poured into our life when we come into a saving faith of Jesus Christ. Through, he says, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are not the source of Philadelphia, church. We are but a conduit through which Philadelphia flows. And just like a conduit, we have the power to turn that on and off in our lives. And here's the amazing thing about that, is that in uh, Hebrews, in one translation, it actually says, um, instead of, make Philadelphia happen— he doesn't write and say, hey guys, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and make Philadelphia happen amongst the believers in your community and amongst other people in your community. He says, let it continue. Because it's not something that we can do ourselves. It's something that we let continue God flow through us. Philadelphia is not something we can do on our own. And I think the truth is, one of the reasons that we struggle at times to really love difficult people is because we're simply trying to do it so often on our own strength. We're relying upon our own natural ability to accomplish something that is divinely meant to be supernaturally inspired in our lives. And so when we default to ourselves, church, is it any wonder then why we have malice in our hearts when we encounter people online who say something that we disagree with? When we rely on our own strength to express Philadelphia Is it any wonder, then, why we try to cancel people who differ from ours? Is it any wonder, then, church, why, when we try to share Philadelphia on our own strength, that we tend to isolate people who are hard to love in our communities, whether that's in our city, in our neighborhood, or even within the four walls of this church? The truth is, this morning, church, is that We cannot express Philadelphia apart from Christ. We can't do it. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's only through Christ alone that we have that strength to share Philadelphia. And here's the amazing part with Hebrews, is that our reliance upon Christ to love others is made even more necessary when we stop to understand who it is that the author calls to be the object of our Philadelphia. Because though it is certainly implied in the text, the author never says, Hey, share Philadelphia with people you like. Share people Philadelphia with people that you enjoy being around. Because that's easy. That's easy for us as people, as human beings. Hanging around with people who look like me, being around people who think like me, or believe like I do, does not require any power of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's something that unbelievers do. But what the people that the author is talking to requires something supernatural in our hearts. So pay attention here for just a moment and notice who the author of Hebrews calls us to love in verses 2 and 3. He says, Do not show, or do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Did you catch it? We're commanded to exercise our Philadelphia towards the stranger, towards people who are in prison, towards people who are suffering. In other words, a better way to say that is that we have a divine responsibility as followers of Jesus to love people who are hard to love. And the way in which Hebrews is exhorting us here to express that uh, Philadelphia to others is unique. At, at least in the, in the sense that very few of us, and when I say very few of us, I'm lumping myself into this as well, at least in the sense that very few of us actually ever endeavor to do so. Because notice what the author says in this moment. He says twice that the manifestations of Philadelphia in the life of a believer is to consider other circumstances as if they were our own. And the same could be said about showing hospitality to strangers. In other words, what the author is talking about here, the kind of expression of Philadelphia that he's getting at, is what we would know today as empathy. He's talking about this idea of empathy. And empathy is one of those weird words where there's a lot of confusion surrounding that. So let me give you some uh, clear uh, language that we can use when we're talking about this. As I said earlier, he's talking about a modern concept that is rooted in our ancient Christian tradition. Because the word itself, empathy, has only been in use since the 1900s. And it's actually the combination of two Greek words, M and pathos. And when we bring those two words together, it actually means in-feeling. And so for our definition, we could say then that empathy is a person's ability to recognize and share the emotions of another individual. It involves, first, seeing someone else's situation from their vantage point, and second, sharing their emotions, including, if any, distress. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it for us, empathy is relating to those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. And so as I was trying to think about how do I process this how do I share this idea with the church this morning I was I came across an interesting article have you ever heard of the R70i age suit anybody raise your hands anybody know what that is I couldn't raise my hand either. I had no idea prior to this week, but this is incredible. It's actually a robotic suit that is uh, complete with augmented reality glasses that allows its wearers to step into the shoes of an 85-year-old individual. And so the suit itself actually simulates impaired vision, hearing loss, and reduced mobility. And you say, why in the heck would anybody have any desire to put that on? It was actually created for caregivers to have a better understanding of their elderly patients. And so Jeffrey Fowler of the Wall Street Journal, who actually had the ability to try on the R70i age suit, wrote this. He said that the unforgettable and at times distressing uh, experience shines a light not just on aging, but also on that virtual reality equipment can teach us empathy. Empathy is very simply stepping into the shoes of somebody else. And so while empathy is a relatively new concept, the or word, the concept of empathy is actually sprinkled throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, we could say that the story of the gospel is actually the divine story of Empathy. Because think about this for a moment. Through his incarnation, Jesus took an empathetic stance towards fallen humanity by making himself nothing and taking on the form of human likeness, as Philippians tells us, so that he might be able to identify with our human nature, with our human weaknesses, with our human suffering, with our human uh, temptations from our vantage point. Therefore, Jesus is not only the perfect and superior high priest who atones for all of our sins, but he is a Savior who offers his empathetic grace and mercy to all who call on his name when they are in need. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is our great high priest. He knows what it means to be human. He can identify with our suffering because he himself suffered as well with the same struggles that we do. But it didn't just stop with Jesus. It didn't just stop with Christ's example as followers of Jesus we are called to model His perfect empathy as an expression of our own brotherly love for others. We see this in Romans 12, chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Or we see Paul using empathetic terms in 1 Corinthians 12:26, where he says that when one part suffers, every part suffers with it, talking about the body of Christ. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The Bible makes it clear and plain that our Christian experience is to be a shared experience with others. And our ability to empathize is one of the hallmarks. It's one of the staples or the pillars that is an expression of our Christian love. But this is important. This is where secular empathy and biblical empathy tend to diverge on different paths. Because secular empathy... Often seeks to understand others' experiences from their vantage point for the purpose of solely affirming their feelings. It's the pop culture practice of being non judgmental by validating whatever a person feels for the sake of love and tolerance. And again, as we said earlier today, someone who has that viewpoint of empathy might say that if you don't validate another person's self-understanding, you are not loving that person. And of course, we know that the meaning of love is contrasted to that for sure, and that's a sermon for another message. But the belief is that if you don't empathize totally with their feelings or affirm their self-understanding, it's hatred. But biblical empathy... Biblical empathy, as it diverges from secular empathy, follows Christ's perfect example. Jesus understands and experiences our perspective and our emotions from our vantage point. But catch this. He took an empathetic stance towards humanity, but he did so without ever sacrificing the truth of who he was and what God's word says. Jesus never empathized to the point with others where he became enmeshed with them or to the point where he practiced extreme relativism and said, whatever you feel and believe is okay by me. Jesus was empathetic without ever compromising the truth of who he was in God's Word so that he would be able to help us in the most effective way for our good. Practicing biblical empathy as we model Christ's example for us, means, church, that we put on a cloak of humility. A cloak of humility to temporarily withhold a biblical critique of another person's feelings, of their words and interpretation and perspective until we understand accurately and robustly. Let me say that again. Following Christ's example of empathy means that we temporarily withhold a biblical critique of another person's words, of their interpretation of their perspective, until we understand accurately and robustly. And so notice within that word, within that language, what I'm saying. Notice the words temporarily, as well as the words until. As Christ followers, we have a calling and a mandate to deeply understand others, and we should try to understand others from their vantage point, but to do so as to better bring the full bear of the full weight of God's love and truth into their individual circumstances and situations. In that sense, as Christ followers, we're more like a surgeon with a scalpel through the power of the Holy Spirit cutting out cancer than we are trying to peel an apple with a sledgehammer. We are called to be empathetic people. And so in that sense, church, this morning, I would say to you that loving others is showing empathy to others. Because biblical empathy is like the key that unlocks the compassion that is necessary to share the Philadelphia of Christ, especially with those people that we find in our communities that are hard to love, the Steves in our lives. It unlocks that so that we can share that with other people. In other words, um, following Christ's example of empathy is a divine pathway to loving difficult people. And when we seek to understand other people's experiences, those hard-to-love people in our lives, not only do we gain a greater understanding for the individual, but we also gain a greater capacity to share God's love into their individual circumstances and situation. Loving God is, uh, loving others is showing empathy to others. But here's the thing. As I said earlier, empathy is one of those things that as Christians, we don't necessarily practice all the time. And I think there's good reason for that. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to show empathy to other people is because empathy requires of us a skill set, that very few of us have ever had modeled or taught for us in our modern American culture. That skill set is the ability to listen. The ability to listen to others. I can think of no better place in my own personal experience that has shown me time and time again that I'm a terrible listener than in my marriage. You learn real quick how good your listening skills are when you get married. And mine have, uh, have had to grow quite a bit. Over the years. And as someone who is an, uh, a results driven individual, when I encounter a problem, I have a tendency to want to fix it immediately. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if I'm operating a business, right? But it can be detrimental to the overall health of my marriage. Because when Don comes and shares a problem with me, I have a natural incl- inclination to want to offer solutions immediately. But as I found out, 90% of the time, Don's not looking for solutions. What her heart desires is empathy from her husband. She desires to be heard, to be understood, the same way that I desire to be understood when I face problems. And I share that example because I think it so beautifully illustrates the fact that as Christ followers, we have a tendency to approach empathy towards others the same way I often approach listening to my wife. We're looking for the quick fix. We're looking for the quick fix. And that means that sometimes when we encounter someone in our world who is suffering, who's hurting, who's experiencing difficulty in life, we have an ability or tend to default to just throwing Bible verses at them or thoughts and prayers in their direction. Thoughts and prayers are Bible verses. And and to put it another way, we try to tell people how to walk before we actually walk a mile in their shoes. We try to tell people how to walk before we actually put on their shoes and walk with them. And it's not because I I think that we're an uncaring group of Christians or believers, but I think one of the reasons that we do that is because it's easier. It's less messy to do that. Biblical empathy requires relational capital of us emotional capital it requires us to slow down to invest time to humbly listen to crawl down into the pit with someone who is suffering in a circumstance or a situation to gain the understanding and have the ability to pull them back out it requires something of us and so i think one of the practical ways church that we can begin to express our philadelphia this week is simply to stop talking and start listening more now, for those of you who are in the audience, I know Jacob and Robin are here and some other people as well. Um, if you've taken our premarital class here at Mosaic, you know that Jason and I refer to this as active listening, right? If you've gone through uh, Prepare and Enrich, you know about active listening. And it's the ability to listen to another individual without always focusing on what I'm going to say in response to what they're saying. Because in 90% of our conversations, whether it's with a person that is directly in front of us or somebody that's online, we're always running through our minds, what am I going to say in response to this individual? And active listening says, stop and just listen. Listen to what they're feeling. Listen to what their experience is. Listen to what they need. Give them the space to share their feelings and emotions. And then what we do in active listening is that we parrot back to them what we've heard. I'm not injecting my opinion of their story. I'm parroting back to you what I think I've heard for understanding. Don, I think I heard this da-da-da-da-da. Is that correct? We're listening to try and understand as opposed to inserting ourselves into the story. And so, church, loving people, loving difficult people, is so hard. It does require a reliance upon Christ and a willingness to share his love with others through empathy. It means we have to take time to listen to others, to walk a mile in their shoes in order to gain an appropriate understanding of their experiences and feelings. But I think, church, when we do that, Not only do we gain a greater understanding of their lives and the world around us, but I think also we will see that we gain a greater capacity to share Philadelphia with every person we come across, even Steve. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering